Hi, this is David Peters, host of the Dear Padre podcast. Today we're bringing you something a little different. It's a excerpt because I didn't start recording right away from the lecture that Brother Logan Isaac gave to the Hospitallers of St. Martin, a Christian community for veterans ministry. St. Martin of Tours feast day was last week, and this lecture is about the life of Martin. The sound quality is bad. He's far away from the mic. Uh, that's my fault for putting the uh, iPad far away from him, um, but he gave a great lecture, and it's really uh, eye-opening for how veterans process their experience and how they continue to contribute to the world in which we live in, and how we find faith after war as well. So I hope you enjoy this uh, this lecture. Declaration than being martyred or, or run off. So Martin or Severus points out that Martin, quote, did not, however, all at once retire from military service, end quote, in part because his roommate promises he will leave too if Martin delays his departure, and his roommate is one of his own officers. Severs justifies the moral compromise, saying that Martin, quote, continued, although but in name, so he's really only a soldier in name, but really he's a Christian, and to Severus, those are mutually exclusive, and Martin is a challenge to the idea that, you, that Christian and soldier cannot coexist. Um, continued, although but named, to act as a part of a soldier for nearly two years after he had received baptism. And that brings us to Burns in 356 when he's dishonorably discharged. By late 356, Martin has been assigned to Julian, newly elevated to Caesar, who's preparing for his very first military campaign against a Germanic tribal confederation named the Alemanni. Julian will eventually prevail in the Battle of Strasbourg. But in Burns, he's rallying his troops, getting them ready uh, as they wait for the weather to improve. It's very likely that toward the end of 356, probably December, most military campaigns waited until the spring. Um, and so the Battle of Strasbourg is where uh, is the battle uh, that Martin eventually refuses to fight in. Um, and many of us probably know the story. This is um, one of the few um, stained glass and other uh, artwork that I could find where Martin is refusing his service. And the Tours uh, Basilica has misnamed this. They've called this his conscription, but he's clearly putting out his hand, saying no to the sword, and he's placed his helmet on the ground. Um, this is um, within the Basilica of St. Martin of Tours, which is, and the windows are dedicated to seminarians who are entering the military, so chaplains. And uh, Severus uh, has, puts on his lips, hitherto I have served you as a soldier. Allow me now to become a soldier of God. Let the man who is to serve to serve you receive your gift. Uh, it was customary to kind of, uh, when conscription was conscription, but it kind of wasn't because units get deserted pretty quickly and easily. So the commanders would give them gifts to secure their loyalty and to kind of build them up, range them up before going into battle. Uh, Let the man who is to serve you receive the gift. I am the soldier of Christ. It is impermissible for me to fight. In the Latin, um, soldier and fight are two different words. Militus, uh, I can talk about this later, is distinct from pugnari. Pugnari is to fight, to wage battle, and the soldier, the soldier's duties somehow, to, for Martin it seems, are distinct from pugnari because he's been a soldier for this long, but he refuses to pugnari. 
So uh, immediately upon his dishonorable discharge, and we know that because he hadn't served a full term, he hadn't received land or a gift of money from Caesar, he seeks out Hillary, who at the time was the was the kind of theologian, I don't know, N.T. Wright or whoever it might be today, but he goes and finds the highest star he can, that's Hillary Poitier, who's about to be exiled for, um, for his fighting against the Arians, for his orthodoxy, he's gonna be exiled. Um, but he catches them before he's exiled, and there's a whole lot of timing in the scholarly work about whether or not they met, but he, they probably did. Hillary wants to make him a priest, and Martin refuses, he says, my hands, you know, I've, I've been in the military, I don't want to be a priest, but he does settle for being made an exorcist. An exorcist at that time was someone who performed certain rituals to prepare adults for baptism. So he's, he helps convert people and do, does the liturgies that make that possible. He begins founding churches and monasteries as an itinerant Bible thumper. I can't find, I meant to look that up, I don't have it. Um, so that his, his time as an exorcist, uh, he's itinerant, he refuses to wear anything fancy. Uh, he dresses as a beggar. He's, uh, there's one episode where he's beaten up and he refuses to fight back. And he takes, his, takes it as some kind of recompense for his time in the military. He built churches upon the ruins of pagan temples that he destroyed after uh, converting and baptizing the civil, uncivilized, clumsy rural people that he encountered. So pagans, pagani, um, There's another term for uncivilized backcountry hillbillies. He loved the countryside and loved the people of the countryside, even though the popular opinion of them was quite low. Think of MAGA hats. Think of uh, opioid addiction. Martin found himself among those people and remained with them persistently throughout his ministry. Um, and I. I mention that, and it's important for me to mention that, because on pilgrimage in 2016 was election night. Hmm. I was staying in the community of uh, St. Martin in Evron, um, which is the community of seminarians who still uh, eat together, read together, hear the news together as they eat. It's an incredible experience. In the middle of the night, I start getting text messages on my computer from mostly women in my life who are telling me that Trump has been elected. And so in the moment when I'm supposed to be focusing on Martin and having this spiritual encounter, I have to wrestle with, and I get to the airport later, and it says the most powerful man in the world is a celebrity TV star. And that was what I took from, from what God put in my life, was that something has happened in our world in which the rural, uncivilized, clumsy, backwoods people have, have found a voice in the only person that will have it. And Martin, I think, really does an incredible job of testifying to putting the poorest among us first. And in, our, in his society, and, our, and to a certain extent in ours, I think, I think that may look like something like approaching or, or bridging those partisan divides that, that we are so well aware of, and I'll talk about that later. He starts in Ligouge uh, with Hilary Poitier, um, and uh, an abbey survives to this day there in Ligouge. Um, and many churches followed, including in Langeais, Samé, Amboise, Serran, Tournon, Cannes, and countless others. That's just like one book that listed them out. But if you go on these pilgrimage, the, the actual walking pilgrimages, there's like hundreds of churches. And they all have a fairly legitimate claim to being founded by Martin. Um, the last that he was found as an exorcist was in Marmoutier in 371. And that brings us to his bishopric. 
Sorry. Martin preferred the company of poor, uneducated agrarians in the countryside, but his reputation attracted the wealthy urban elites who coveted the ecclesiastical stature his presence would convey. Everybody knew Martin. The countryside, the cities, everybody saw him as a holy man. He was like the Antony of Egypt for Gaul. Um, the people of Tours eventually contrived a plot to lure Martin to their city. Severus remembers it uh, in this way, quote, Martin was called upon to undertake the episcopate of the church of Tours. But when he could not easily be drawn forth from his monastery, a certain Ruricius, one of the citizens, pretending that his wife was ill and casting himself down at his knees, prevailed on him to go forth. Multitudes of the citizens were posted by the road on which he traveled. Thus, he is thus under a kind of guard escorted to the city. Severus continues, a few persons, however, and among these, some of the bishops, who are arguing again amongst themselves right here, as Martin is being laid hands upon by uh, a bishop and the townspeople are crying out of celebration. This is in the altar window of the church, uh, the uh, St. Martin's Church in Chapelle-sur-Loire in France, uh, along the, tour, the path between Tours and Congre died. A few persons, some of them bishops who had been summoned to appoint a chief priest, were impiously offering resistance, asserting forsooth that Martin's person was contemptible, that he was unworthy of the episcopate, and that he was a man despicable in countenance, that his clothing was mean and his hair disgusting. <laughs> Martin's episcopal see was in the city center of Tours, a church whose patron saint was another soldier saint, Maurice of Thebes. His affinity for these simple, uncivilized rhythms persisted, and he refused to reside in the ornate cathedral. When he, and here's Severus again, quote, when he felt it impossible to tolerate the disturbance caused by the great numbers of those visiting the cathedral, he established a monastery for, for himself about two miles outside the city. There were altogether 80 disciples. All things were possessed in common. They all took their food together after the hour of fasting was passed. No one used wine except when illness compelled them to do so. Most of them were clothed in garments of camel's hair. Any dress approaching to softness was there deemed criminal. By the ninth century, and so what they do is they've dug caves in the side of the mountains, and there's still people, uh, as you drive between Tour and Khan and throughout the countryside, uh, people build houses into the side of the mountain, and it looks really cool. I bet they have great wine, and I, but I never got a chance to like go inside one of them. But it's literally like, it's almost like a hobbit hole. But it's like a house, but it's like right against the mountain. By the ninth century, what began as a cluster of caves dug into the hillside rose to such opulence that it was pillaged by the Normans. But it was in the Middle Ages that the abbey reached its zenith, tragically becoming a bully pulpit for the Crusades. Pope Urban II encouraged religious wars in an infamous sermon there in 1196, kicking off the First Crusade followed by Popes Calixtus in 1119 and Alexander III in 1126. In the 16th century, and this is uh, Marmoutier in its, in its height, you can see the church, the central church here, the uh, court or the, uh, the, the arcade, and then other you know, farmlands and stuff like that. In the 16th century, Marmoutier came under the patronage of the French monarchy. That protection ended with the revolution of 1799 when the abbey and Martin's Basilica across the river were dismantled so that the lead roofs could be melted into ammunition. 
Today, the only remaining intact structures are used as a Catholic private school. But let's return to the third century. This is a gold coin of Magnus Maximus. This one was minted in London. Because of his service in the Praetorian Guard, Martin was no stranger to the emperors. Unlike other Christian soldiers martyred before him, he had no qualms with his proximity to imperial power, making him something of a political moderate. However, he never compromised his ecclesiastical authority in a pursuit of power or influence. This is evident in Martin's dealings with Magnus Maximus, the secular ruler of Martin's episcopate from 383 to 388. So keep in mind, 371 is when he becomes bishop, which, uh, oddly enough for Americans, happens on July 4th. And uh, 12 years into it, Magnus Maximus uh, uh, ascends the throne. Severus records that although, quote, the disgraceful flattery of all around the emperor was generally remarked. While the priestly dignity had, with degenerate submissiveness, taken a second place to the royal retinue, in Martin alone, apostolic authority continued to assert itself, end quote. In other words, for Martin, there was a sharp distinction between the church and the state, even if the two were ir irrevocably intertwined. <coughs> this is also another favorite scene of mine, and I've only found it, I've only found it here. And uh, this is a, um, uh, a chasuble medallion, an embroidery medallion that would be on uh, basically Eucharistic uh, uh, robes or tables and what have you. Whatever historians say about Maximus, Severus reminds, remembers him kindly as an admirer of Martin who sought to bring the bishop under his wing. Martin, however, would not be flattered into a tacit endorsement of the emperor. Quote, although, although often invited, Martin kept away from Maximus's entertainments, end quote, because it was felt that the emperor had killed his way to the top. Eventually, Maximus convinces Martin to attend, but it doesn't go quite as planned. Here is Severus's account. About the middle of the banquet, according to custom, one of the servants presented a goblet to the king. It would have probably been this person, or the other person in green. He orders it rather to be given, I'm sorry, uh, one of the servants presented the goblet to a king. He orders it rather to be given to the very holy bishop, Martin, right here. You can see the goblet. So instead of handing the goblet directly to the king, he hands it to the bishop, Maximus hoping, um, uh, Severus continues, expecting and hoping that he should then receive the cup from his right hand, a symbol of endorsement or patronage. But Martin, when he had drunk, handed the goblet to his own presbyter. As thinking no one worthier to drink next to him. Does anybody know where this is going? <laughs> <coughs> Oddly enough, the entire entourage, quote, admired this conduct so much that this very thing by which they had all been undervalued gave them pleasure. The report then ran through the whole palace that Martin had done at the king's dinner what no bishop had dared to do at the banquets of the lowest judges, end quote. The emperor so admired Martin that he asked the bishop to catechize the empress, seen here kneeling before Martin right here. This is another chasuble embroidery. The same episode would be used to defame Martin later by one of his own disciples, Bryce, uh, since it was inappropriate to privately instruct women, regardless of their stature. 
Martin eventually leans, uh, before I go on, I didn't include it here, but I should have. Uh, Martin's, Martin is later accused by one of his students that you know, he entertained the Empress privately, who knows what could have happened. Um, and, but Martin's relationship to women is actually quite progressive. Um, there's, uh, in the life and in the dialogue, Severus recalls an episode where someone hears Martin talking to himself. And this person knocks on the door and kind of bursts in and Martin's surprised and the person, or Severus, uh, asks, who are you talking to? And Martin has been consulting uh, the, the Virgin Mary and the saints Agnes and Thecla. Not Michael or Gabriel or David or Agnes, who was a virgin martyr uh, and who baptized herself. Um, and Thecla, I forget. I don't know nearly as much about Thecla. And there's, a, uh, there's one uh, in, the, in the chapel of Bryce at, at the remains of Marmoutier. There's uh, a bas relief of Martin speaking with Mary, Agnes, and Thecla. It's, it's something to behold. Martin eventually laid on his relationship with Maximus to prevent what was perhaps the inevitable. Christians using capital punishment, the prerogative of the state to silence dissent under the guise of church unity. This brings us up to 384 in Bordeaux, and uh, what is commonly referred to as the Priscillian Affair. Academically, this is of some interest, and that's part of the reason why the cult is reinvigorated at the discovery of some of Priscillian's own writings in the 1860s. Um, Maximus fancied himself a Christian as well as an emperor, and was happy to entertain ideas that he could do both. So when Spanish bishops made an accusation of heresy against Priscillian, Bishop of Abaddon, the emperor gladly took up the case. In 384, Maximus assembled a group of bishops in Bordeaux to determine Priscillian's fate. Martin attends, of course. His teachings had been condemned in 380 at the Council of Zaragoza, but his popularity, popularity grew in direct correlation to the zealous opposition of his accusers. So um, uh, if Theagus and others are, are really, for some reason, want to get Priscilla to stop teaching his form of extreme asceticism, and that very opposition is what spreads the word around the countryside and cities of Priscilla, thereby improving his, his popularity by even by talking against him. Uh, and the uh, Ithacius is the bishop of Osonuba in Portugal, and he's his Priscillian's chief accuser. Martin objected personally to Maximus, insisting that a secular court must not rule on an ecclesiastical matter. His appeal was bolstered by a significant popularity in Gaul, so Maximus was forced to appease him publicly. Martin's posture toward Ithacius was even more brazen openly refusing them communion when they found themselves across the altar from one another in the midst of this conflict. If Martin had been willing to condemn Maximus for a violent past, all the more must be true for a bishop seeking the state support and assassinating a peer. Martin's public excommunication of a powerful cleric made life difficult for Maximus, and the emperor was forced to quietly refer the matter to a secular court in Trier in 385. He had to change the charge against Priscillian from heresy to sorcery, and the trial was brief and resulted in the execution of Priscillian and five of his followers. When Martin discovered that Maximus had betrayed his promise to leave the matter to the church, it ended their friendship and fractured churches. Martin excommunicated others who had advocated the death penalty for a fellow Christian, 
and Ambrose and Milan similarly refused an audience with Felix, the bishop of Trier, for allowing the matter to be taken up in his diocese. From Rome, Pope Sericius censured not only Felix, but Maximus as well. Severus attributes them for his death and battle a few years later to a prophecy that Martin made in reaction to the whole affair. And Priscillian was treated as a martyr in and around Gaul for several centuries following. Uh, and it, I'll conclude the, the life with um, how it ended, and I'll go into how Martin's legacy evolved uh, after Severus. Um, but it does appear that Severus completed his book, his biography, before Martin dies. He claims to have spoken to Martin to gain material. Um, he doesn't mention Martin's death in the book, it's only later in the dialogues. Um, and uh, he claims uh, um, these, he claims to have gotten these first-hand accounts from Martin and people that knew Martin. And we don't have any reason to doubt it. According to his dialogues, which appear many years later, Martin dies on November 8th in Cannes, a fishing village, about a day's trek from Tours, where he'd founded a church years before as a young exorcist. His feast day, Martin Mass, is celebrated on November 11th because that was the day that his funeral was held, the day that he was deposited into the earth. And this is uh, another uh, late 19th century painting by Pierre-Adrien Pascal, La Hauve, Saint-Martin Potentiel, Côte-d'Ange. Saint Martin is carried to heaven by two angels. Yeah, I, yeah, there's another like incredible image. A little bit easier to find online than the Pierre Lagarde one. Um, there's no like elements of Martin. I don't know. I, I like saying like the sword, you know, or something. Severus describes Martin's death in a letter to the saint's mother-in-law, Basula. The dying words that he places upon Martin's lips evoke his early military service. Quote, he replied to those weeping round him only in the following words. O Lord, if I am necessary, if I am still necessary to thy people, I do not shrink from the toil. Thy will be done. Terrible indeed, Lord, is the struggle of bodily warfare. And surely it is. Surely it is now enough that I have continued the fight until now. But if you command me still to persevere in the same toil for the defense of your flock, I do not refuse. Nor do I plead against such an appointment in my declining years. Wholly given to thee, I will fulfill whatever duties you have to assign me. And I will serve under your standard as long as you shall prescribe. From the genuine letter number three of Severus. And uh, I also I have more in the back, but I've used those same dying words as a prayer for Martin. Um, any of these icons you see in the back and the blue ones of Martin by Bill McNichols, feel free to take. And there's a little bit about Martin on the back, including that prayer that I've adapted from his dying words. So that is Martin's life, more or less, according to Severus. But Severus is not the only person with stories about Martin, a subject so broad I, could, I couldn't cover it in all the time we have remaining. But a few merit brief mention. As I've said, the, the cult was reinvigorated in the 19th century with his relics and some Brazilian uh, writings, but also stories that survived in the city of Tours and the French countryside. One story you'll find by going on pilgrimage describes how Martin's body, his corpse, um, gets from Caen back to Tours. Severus does not record this, but everybody in Tours knows that uh, how it happened, and it suggests these simmering tensions between the rural communities that he loved so much and the urban centers to which he was reluctantly drawn. 
And this is from a transept window in the Collegiale de Saint-Martin, which is basically this old, rarely used church where he is said to have died. There's like a little slab where it shows where he died. And the, the window above, uh, above that little chapel where he died shows Martin this old man preaching a sermon and holding his bishop's crook. In one legend, very likely based on historical fact, the people of Tours came to Caen uh, under the cover of darkness to steal his corpse and bring it back to the city. Here's Martin dead with his halo, and the people of Tours coming through and removing him through a window, perhaps that same window. The event is remembered every Martin Mass in a boat parade from Caen to Tours, complete with hushed fishermen dressed in black, followed by fireworks and loud music upon arrival in the city. Uh, it's really something else. Um, and there's a, a bridge across the Loire River right there that was filled with people. And this was supposedly the 1700th anniversary of his birth in 2016. Um, but after seeing the, the movie It with all the red balloons and the red, I don't know. I'm not sure what that imagery is doing to me. But anyway, moving on. Related to that same travel, uh, uh, this is the St. Martin Dahlia. Uh, the term St. Martin's St. Martin's Summer um, and the St. Martin's Dahlia relates to another legend um, that it was unseasonably warm as the fishermen quietly navigated up the Loire River from Caen to Tours. Despite the late hour, they could see from their boats that white flowers bloomed as Martin's body passed nearby. To this day across Europe, any brief reprieve from the oncoming winter cold in late fall is referred to as a St. Martin's Summer. This explains how flowers were able to bloom in the middle of November, and even if Martinian nerds like myself prefer to think it was because nature was giving glory to our patron saint. Uh, additionally, Iona Abbey and the High Crosses there, has anybody been? Iona Abbey was founded by George McLeod, who was a World War I veteran and pacifist, and he reinvigorated the Abbey, but in the sixth century, it was established by St. Columba. Before Columba got to the Hebrides and um, secured Christianity in Scotland, Ninian was an earlier Christian missionary to Scotland, and Ninian very likely met Martin in Rome, or I'm sorry, in Europe, before leaving for the Isles to convert the Picts in the early 5th century. His admiration for the Bishop of Tours is, is evident in the many references to Martin that remain throughout the United Kingdom, including the Abbey of Iona, founded first by St. Columba in the 6th century. And St. Martin's High Cross, seen here on the right, is the oldest of all Iona's crosses, and its creator likely began planning and manufacturing before Columba's death. So Columba likely inherited some interest or admiration from Martin through, the, through Ninian's work several centuries earlier. And it's the only one that still remains in the same location. It's the actual cross. And if you go, you'll see that it's, it's, uh, it's facing east and west, said that in the morning you're supposed to watch the rising sun depicts the one scene, in the afternoon as the sun sets you get to see the other. And I brought a replica, if anybody wants to see it, a simple um, berries and vines and then biblical scenes on the other side. Uh, sitting atop Iona, green Iona marble, which is the same they use at the altar at the Abbey of Iona. So Martin Mass, it's also sometimes referred to as Old Halloween. November 11th is Martin Mass. Okay. Like Thanksgiving, it marked the end of the harvest. It's time to feast and prep for winter. Goose is already traditionally served, but it does kind of, it borrows a story that is attributed to Martin 
when the people of Tours were coming to acclaim him bishop, he hides in a goose, goose um, hutch, and the honking gooses give him away. <laughs> and uh, this is actually an envelope from St. Martin's Episcopal Church in Kalamazoo, Michigan. Um, November is also when geese are slaughtered anyway, uh, but typically they're reserved for wealthy households. And so if you are not of means, some, some cities and dioceses and tours provide goose feasts for the poor and the homeless, based on Martin's example. Paper lanterns are popular as well. This is in Sweden, wearing blue. Uh, Sweden and Spain are the two countries that depict Martin with a blue cape for some reason. Um, but it's more, uh, the lanterns are more associated with the dwindling daylight than with anything related to Martin. Um, and then also, uh, Martin's Lent, which came to be known as Advent, also known as the 40 Days of St. Martin, or St. Martin's Feast, or I'm sorry, Fast. According to St. Gregory of Tours, several years after, uh, several uh, hundred years after Martin, the celebration of Advent began in the 5th century when Bishop Perpetuus uh, directed that starting with the Feast of St. Martin on 11 November until Christmas, one fasts three times per week. Somebody is to fast. Christians are to fast three times per week. This practice remained until Martin's, uh, it limited to Martin's own diocese until the 6th century when the Council of Tours in 567 ordered monks to fast every day in the month of December until Christmas. And it becomes, slowly starts to become Advent. According to Alvin Butler, the Catholic historian, the first Council of Masson in 581 ordered Advent from St. Martin's to Christmas Day, three fasting days a week, Mondays, Wednesdays, Fridays, but the whole term of 40 days, which was observed with strict abstinence from flesh meat. So at St. Martin's Feast used to begin the liturgical year. Here's the last couple of slides. Finally, uh, the Latin capella, which means little cape, like a superhero cape. Uh, it, it was a, a relic of Martin's uniform that he cut in half in 354 while on assignment in Amiens. Whether it was actually his cape, and which half it was, is not known. But his value as a contact relic was immeasurable. In fact, the earliest uh, uses of the word, uh, well, the earliest uses of the word chapel, like little church, described the tent in which Martin's capella was preserved and guarded by monks appointed by the king. And we know it existed. The first cloak is attested to in the Royal Merovingian Treasury in 679, but it was likely lost in one of the many pillages of Marmontier Abbey. During the Middle Ages, the relic had been carried by the king in the, into battle and used as a holy relic upon which oaths were sworn. During the reign of Charlemagne and the guardian, the guardian monks were brought in from their chapels or tents to live within the royal palace and given the title Capellani, which evolved into French as Chapelain. Ministers for the church in places of boundaries, like prison walls, the transition from life to death, and war and peace, are all spiritual descendants of those guardian monks. Martin is not just the patron saint of chaplains, he was the first chaplain. Bridging church and state during the fraught transition from an era of innocent persecution to an age of ecclesial appropriation and, cor and corruption. He was the first monastic bishop, a movement started to escape the corruption of the, the, the central churches in the cities. And he lacked the power of holy orders, but he was abundant in the authority of the spirit. He's a paradox, a public recluse, 
refusing to condemn the powerful elites to their own ways, as the early ascetics might be accused of. Rather than enforcing and maintaining boundaries, chaplains transgress and trans transverse them. Chaplains are a present and persistent reminder that though we don't deserve it, God is with us, with all of us. God can be found in both our friends and our enemies, and in things both holy and profane. God is not just the judge, but the trouble, troublemaker as well. <laughs> this is the last slide. The spiritual heritage of St. Martin uh, is carried on uh, in Martin Luther, who was born the day before Martin Mass in 1483, when it was common to take the name of a saint near whose feast day your birth fell. Martin, of course, is, is known to have said, here I stand, I can do no other, so help me God. And he was the, he was the father of the Protestant Reformation. Michael King Jr. was born in 1929. He had his name changed in honor of the German troublemaker after his father witnessed the rise of Nazism while on a world tour in 1934. Uh, Hitler was just elected a year prior, and uh, Martin Luther King's father takes the name of his German reformer uh, who stood up against uh, the power of the church. Maybe we can say other things about Martin and Martin Luther King, uh, Martin Luther and Martin Luther King, um, whether or not Martin Luther was an anti-Semite in the end of his life, whether Martin Luther King was an adulterer, these to me are not irreconcilable based on Martin's uh, witness. He is this paradox that reflects both um, the violence of the world and the mercy of God. So that concludes my uh, slideshow. I do, we have a few minutes for questions. Uh, again, feel free to, I will be very happy with myself, if anybody is as interested in my Martinalia as anybody, as I am. Um, but as I said, I'm, I'm going to take uh, questions. I'm, I know we will be discussing our ministries later. Uh, but I do really appreciate you all being here. Take some prayer cards, and uh, I think I passed out all my bookmarks. But are there any questions of, of me? Yeah. I'm struck by the similarities between St. Francis and St. Martin. Uh, the soldier who um, throws that over in order to follow the Lord so very uh, closely. And I'm wondering um, if Francis was, was captured and tortured, was thought, and I'm wondering if in that experience there was anything similar to that in, in Martin Tour's life, that he had some dreadful physical experience. Yeah, so the question is, uh, Francis, who also became a very popular monastic and had this uh, very traumatic uh, and abusive year as a prisoner of war, whether or not Martin did. Uh, I don't know that Martin ever did. Um, I suspect Severus, and perhaps Martin, certainly felt very conflicted about the, what his service entailed and what it suggested. But I think there's a more, and I, I also hear some veterans bemoan, that's the wrong word, I don't care if someone's been in combat or not. If you've served in the military and you stood ready to die in combat, that's pretty all right with me. We have this pecking order in the military where combat veterans are somehow at the top, even at the bottom. I'm working on a book right now, it's called God is a Front, where we talk about, where I talk about Humility is actually embodied in drunkness, being a drunk. 
And that's something that Jesus adopted. Um, but I, I'm very concerned about what that does, to, especially to those who haven't been in combat, and what that does to combat, as though that's some kind of merit badge, even though I, I didn't shoot, like I was just ordered, I was on orders, and I went, and that's enough. If I had been asked, I probably said no, I want to go to school. Um, but there's a, a, another modern antecedent that I use. Um, another two soldier saints, Alvin York and Desmond Doss. Alvin York is the most decorated uh, service member for World War I, um, and he was a conscientious objector applied multiple times. His priest was on the draft board, and the military still insisted on taking him. He goes, reluctantly, um, he wanted out, and he goes and prays on the mountaintop for 24, 48 hours, and his commanders told him, if, if you want out, I'll let you out, think about it, come back and let me know. And he says, you know what, I prayed about it, and I think God's going to protect me. He's never injured, doesn't have a purple heart, comes home on his deathbed. He asks his son if he thinks that God forgave him for all those 28 Germans he killed. Desmond Doss, World War II, uh, he was also a conscious objector, Seventh-day Adventist, and uh, he had a deferment as a shipyard worker. But he wants to go serve. He wants, like, he recognizes Nazism as a formidable opponent, and he wants to do it. But the, the mentality and the, the system in place made it difficult for him to serve with, while also being nonviolent, which uh, he, he believed very firmly in the Sixth Amendment. Adventists are still, to this day, relatively pacifist. He goes off, he wins the Medal of Honor for saving the, the lives of 75 of his peers who, it, during basic training, he threatened to kill him because he refused to carry a weapon they didn't work on Saturdays. Desmond never had to think on his deathbed whether or not he was forgiven. I, I much prefer to be Desmond even though I still, I still think of Alvin York as a saint. Um, and so I don't know that Martin had a traumatic experience, but I'm also really careful about making traumatic experiences uh, imbuing them with some value other than that which Paul talks about in Romans 5. Suffering brings, persecution brings suffering, suffering uh, brings perseverance and character, but that, that doesn't. I also have some issue with Francis going on a suicide mission. He wanted to die. Paul also says, I, I would rather depart and be with Christ. And Francis clearly wanted to die. He goes off to the Crusades to meet the Sultan and convert him. That is stupid. That is a suicide <laughs> That's like, there are Christian veterans who have returned to Iraq to fight in, with uh, the, the Turkish forces. Imagine one of them said, I'm going to go to al-Baghdadi. I'm going to convert him. You know, you just don't want to put the gun to your own head. And, and Francis knew it. He knew that he could not be a martyr if he did it himself. I mean, I just want to be frank. A lot of people, for a lot of vets, suicide is an appealing option because you get to depart and be with Christ. But if you do it yourself, that solely is the one, at the very least. Um, yeah, I, I, I want to make sure that I've answered your question. Yeah. All right. Yeah, I thought I saw a hand over here. Do you know how uh, other militaries have, uh, or veteran groups from around the world have latched on to, to Martin? Uh, I feel like we're kind of late to that that piece. Uh, yeah. I wasn't sure if you saw, you know, the, the French army or, you know, other, other no. groups have latched on. Um, so the question is whether or not armies and, uh, and countries have latched on to Martin's patron saint? Yeah. Uh, not that I know of, but there's a funny story about that in general and the way 
So uh, right at this time, Severus is one of the earliest people to record a biography as some kind of like actual, like, so Augustine of Hippo invents autobiography with his confessions. If you think about that, like, I'm gonna write about myself. Have you ever thought that someone is a little self-centric? Like, First imagine time. Augustine and then, you know. Anyway, so right at this time when Constantine has endorsed and even supported the church, the church has this new question. Who are we? What are we doing in this world that is now much more murkier than we thought? And stories, narratives, passions, vitas, these are what emerge. And many of them, these soldier saints, are very, they're complicated. Maximilian Tabessa, his story is circulated as early as the early 300s, 287 is when it's dated. And he says, I don't want your, your dog tags, I don't want your uniforms, you kill me now because I'm a Christian. And they use all the same kind of tactics that they would, you know, in draft courts. You know, it's a manly life. Everybody else loves it. What's wrong with you? Uh, and so Martin would have known of these. Um, but these, these soldier stories uh, appear right at this time when the church is trying to figure out how to interact with the church. And Severus is one of the first. Before him was Jerome's biography of St. Antony. And Antony's experience was to screw the church in the city. I'm going out to the desert and doing battle on my own. Pacomius, just a little while later, says, no, 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 we always do everything with community. He's the first one that creates Cenobitic uh, monasticism. Anyway, so all these soldier saint stories pick up a whole lot of value, political value, and relics, and contact relics become a way, we see it in Martin, where his cloak was used by Charlemagne and some of the Merovingians in battle, which I, I think is not, I think that's horrible theology. But it happened. And so many soldier saints, George is the one that comes to mind. George of England. George's dragon tail doesn't appear until the, the 16th century in Jacob de Bourgogne's Golden Legend. Dragons don't exist. I'm sorry to burst anybody's bubble. Rosemary, plug your ears. Um, but the real George, the knight from Cappadocia, was martyred for refusing to confess Caesar as God. Or, I'm sorry, refusing to confess Apollo uh, as uh, uh, Caesar as the son of Apollo or son of God. He was killed by the state. And he states that adopt these saints or these relics with, with a severe disconnect from the actual reliable tradition that has brought them into being. And that I think is, is one of my concerns about veterans today. Who is telling our story? How is the value of our story being preserved? What is it a value that's being preserved? Is it scars? Is it, you know, I've, I've, I've been to a lot of events, talks, presentations, usually about mental health. I've, I'm of the opinion that the more we talk about mental health and veterans, the more we make that connection as inherent. And so we get this image of veterans, you know, from rest development. And that's unfortunate. Martin is what uh, moral philosopher uh, Hilda, Linde, uh, Hilda Lindemann, whom I study with King, uh, Dr. Kinghorn. Uh, she says, uh, communities like this, have to create their own counter stories and in order to assert the value of their stories and their own human dignity. So you won't hear me talking a whole lot about, I, I will talk about suicide because I think we need to talk about it, but I won't be talking about PTSD, uh, PTSD, TBI, moral injury. Um, I know it exists. I studied it. I did one of the earliest stuff on Lit when the article came out in 09. But there's only so long we can talk about it and not produce results and still talk about it and us not be kind of
kind of crazy. Um, and so the, the stories that we have, that we possess, we get to control how, we should be allowed to control how that value is encapsulated and shared. So I'm concerned from a social justice perspective, what is happening in the community of veterans from Vietnam onward when, uh, and I, part of GI Justice, and I'll, I'll conclude with this and take one last question if there is one. GI Justice was born out of my realizing that for years, thinking I was an ally to others because I thought I had privilege, and I do, thinking I was using my privilege for others, then realizing I could be deprivileged like that with an accusation of mental illness, uh, whether or not I'm intellectually capable of doctoral research came up when I was going to be an academic. And so it, it, your privilege is only as strong as the weakest link. Mental illness has, has historically been the easiest, quickest way in which the most privileged can excommunicate one of their own. White trash, that is not an appropriate term in my house. There's no such thing as a human being who's trash. Um, and veterans, since uh, when the, the birth of the Civil Rights Movement, Martin Luther King, his second in command was Ralph Abernathy. Ralph Abernathy learned his leadership skills as a platoon sergeant in World War II. The GI Bill was born from World War I veterans marching on Congress, being killed by their own uh, General MacArthur? No, yeah, Douglas MacArthur. World War I veterans not being paid the pensions they were promised marching in an interracial, intergenerational uh, camp. Bonus army. Bonus march, thank you so much. And now we have a people's, people's campaign. Moral movement, poor people's campaign, which was named after a movement that was led by Ralph Abernathy, platoon sergeant World War II, and the only veterans who are supporting and amplifying that poor people's campaign only reasserts the predetermined ideas that they have. We aren't accepting bringing veterans in for the, the skills that they might have, we're bringing them in for, as, as microphones. And when I realized that I needed allies, even as I tried to be one, that changed the entire perspective I came at my own privilege, at the story of Martin, and the value that it has, and whether the extent to which we actually are willing to dig and listen to soldiers' stories. They can go on and on about Maurice, about Pacomius is one of my new favorites now. It's up to us as veterans not to self-exclude, even though that's kind of what community, monastic communities were. That's why I love Martin. He, he was a monastic. He, he brought people with him. People came to him, and he insisted every day walking two miles from the sea to his monastery. And that whole time, he was meeting wealthy elites. He was meeting country bumpkins. His feet were getting tired. He refused to lay on a bed of straw because, you know, the typical aesthetics thing, you know, the, the weird thing we have about suffering. Anyway, um, so I want to, I'll close with saying, Martin gives us a gateway into reimagining the very nature of our experience. Francis does, Pacomius does, Maurice does, Ignatius of Loyola, don't get me started on him, and the Jesuits. Our experiences have actual value that is not dependent upon the majority culture saying that it does. We, they already know it does. Our stories are already being used and passed around by the majority culture. But 
we are the ones who should and have to determine what those stories mean. What, that, what it means if when we talk about betrayal, that that carries actual moral substance. That it's not just in our heads, that something actually has happened in our society. You know, from Vietnam, I started talking about Ralph Abernathy. Civil war, or I'm sorry, uh, civil rights movement never thought for a second that veteran status needed to be included because it didn't, because veterans were not made second class citizens until the six, late 60s and 70s. But if you'd asked Ralph Abernathy, Martin Luther King Jr., should veterans be any, should they have civil rights, human dignity, social justice? Well, of course. There's no reason to think that they wouldn't until just a few years later. Um, so I, I'll, I promise I'll end with a plug, gijustice.com, go check it out. That's one of my babies right now, talking to legislators and to, I found out all these fun things about uh, civil rights and federal protections, and I'll talk about that separately. It's 1034, is there any last pressing question before we move on? No? All right, I have cards, I'm happy to leave them with you. Uh, Father David, thank you for having me. Thanks again, Logan, and let's take a break. And